Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. One reason the Defense Department can't get to a clean financial audit has to do with its multiple and sometimes outdated financial management systems. The DOD does have a plan to modernize the systems. The Office of Inspector General finds trouble with what officials and how they're going about it. We get the latest from OIG Project Manager's Chris Hilton. Mr. Hilton, good to have you with us. Thank you for having us. And Shelby Barnes. Ms. Barnes, good to have you with us. Hi, thank you so much. And fair to say this was an audit not so much of DOD finances, but of the systems that make up the financial network there and of their plans to modernize it. Is that a good way to put it? Yes, I think that's a great way to summarize what this audit was. We focused on the DOD's financial systems specifically. We reviewed the systems that were subject to the Federal Financial Management Improvement Act. Essentially, this is a law that requires the systems capture data and record transactions properly. And the DOD has established goals to, as you said, modernize its systems environment and to update its systems or stop using some of its old systems by 2028. However, what we found in our audit was that goal wasn't aggressive enough. And without a more modern systems environment, we found that the DOD will just continue to spend a lot of money on systems that don't record those transactions properly. And just to define the scope of this, it's not just the Pentagon and the fourth estate agencies, but does this also include the armed forces and their often multiple financial systems? Uh, yes, it definitely includes all of those systems and all those parts and pieces of the DOD. Uh, we looked at basically any plans related to maintaining the DOD's IT system environment and how they impact the DOD's financial statements. By the numbers, DOD's IT environment contains over 400 systems and applications and over 2,000 interfaces. This complex environment contributes to many of the DOD's challenges. Right, and it's not simply the multiplicity of them, but in some cases the age of them and the fact that they can't interoperate with one another in some cases. Fair to say? That is absolutely correct. I think some of the systems that the DOD still uses today are from the 1950s, 1960s, 1970s. Obviously, they weren't necessarily always intended to uh, produce financial statements. That's a newer requirement. So those are some of the challenges that the department's dealing with. Right, because in the 1950s and 1960s, they could count the beans, so to speak, but they don't meet what are considered contemporary standards for financial systems. Correct. Yes, that's correct. Plus, there's a certain cost in maintaining these old systems, and the multiplicity is a cost multiplier itself, fair to say. That is fair to say. One of our highlights in our report is that the DOD maintains 37 purchasing systems throughout all its components and pieces, and obviously that presents challenges from the perspective of, well, if you have a challenge across 37 systems, then you have to have 37 corrective actions. So that does present significant challenges for the department. Right. And you mentioned they have 400 systems with 200 interfaces. So that's even beyond the purchasing systems. 2,000 interfaces. I wish it was 200. 2,000. Yeah, I didn't write the third one down on my sheet here. Okay, so we've got the full scope of that. And let's talk about the scope of the plan. That is to say, what do they hope to do by 2028 at this point? What's their end vision for all of this? Yeah, so that's actually one of the things that we identified within our audit that wasn't particularly clear. The DOD has multiple plans, all of which focus on a simplified systems environment. That is the department's desire, and that is the DOD's goal. 
But what we found was that the plans didn't clarify what systems the DOD plans to keep and what systems they plan to retire between now and 2028. And so that was one of the things that we highlighted within our report that the DOD does need to clarify what systems it plans to update, to modernize, and which of those systems it needs to stop using. And we recommended that they stop using them as swiftly as possible. Right. It sounds, therefore, like the plan is more of a guidance to a future vision than a detailed modernization plan. Yes, I would say that's exactly what we found within our audit. We're speaking with Shelby Barnes and Chris Hilton. They are project managers in the Office of Inspector General at the Defense Department. And did you find that they're putting sufficient resources against this modernization effort? And is it in the right place? That is, is it a CIO project? Is it a CFO project? Or does it cross different boundaries? I would say they are definitely putting a lot of resources in in uh, the area. I think uh, our audit found that there was approximately $4 billion they spent in 2022 on these financial management systems. And I think that's one of the challenges we identified, obviously, from the perspective of you're spending so much on these systems that aren't going to get you where you want to go in the current year. And if you just kind of do things as swiftly as possible, like Shelby mentioned, they will get the department to a lot better place. I mean, is there a strategy to, say, take within one of the armed services, for example, or in something like DISA, which is a large component agency, and just consolidate within that piece, that component, which would maybe eliminate dozens, and then try to get the Air Force and the Army and DISA together? You know, I'm just making that up, but that idea. There definitely are goals that each of, you know, you mentioned like the Army, Navy, and Air Force, they all have their own goals. The plans that we were looking at were for the entire DOD. So I think that what you're speaking about definitely exists at that individual component level. Our review just determined at the entire DOD level, was the plan detailed enough to get the department where it wants to go? I would also add to that that there's significant initiatives there to move the department in the right direction, and and there are indications that they're doing so. I know, for example, uh, U.S. Marine Corps, they transitioned to a modern ERP in an effort to obtain a clean audit opinion. So there is definitely traction there. I, I think one of the biggest things, talking about like it being a CIO challenge or a CFO challenge, or a military department challenge is really a team effort. And this is one thing that Mr. Steffens, the deputy chief financial officer, has really focused on. This is a team effort being DOD. DOD is not going to get across the finish line without everyone pushing in the same direction. So that's one thing that has been a laser focus of the department is really like this is a team effort both horizontally across CIO and CFO, but also vertically down to the components and up to DOD. And what were your major recommendations then? So one of the um, most significant recommendations that we made was for the department to create a strategy where it basically determines for all of its systems, whether or not they're going to update their system or if they're going to retire and stop using that system. Essentially, the DOD needs to, we, we believe that the strategy is important because the DOD really needs to wrap their arms around what they have now and they need to determine what's going to remain and and get those systems updated so that they can start producing good and reliable data. And these financial systems, are these a subset of the business systems that comprise the DOD? Because they've had 
several runs at business system modernizations over the years, at least the 20 years I've been looking at it closely, there have been several gambits to try to get around the business systems. Financial systems a subset here? Yeah, there are actually um, approximately 4,600 DOD IT systems, and only about 5% of them currently fall in the category of financial management systems. So it's actually a quite small subset of the bigger DOD system environment. And obviously trying to get our arms or DOD trying to get its arms around that environment is needed, obviously, to produce good financial data and hopefully obtain an audit opinion And in general, on the plan they have, which doesn't have the detail that you feel they do need, but their plan to 2028, is this basically an in-house effort, or do they have integrator support and programmer contractor support? It's kind of a mixed bag. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of contractor support in this effort, so it is diverse, I guess, in how they're addressing the issue. All right. And would you say that this is an urgent set of recommendations, this audit and and this, this publication? I would say yes, that we feel that this audit report and this recommendation is really imperative. We know that the DOD is working very hard and putting a lot of resources towards modernizing its systems, but we feel that some of the recommendations within this report are really going to put the department on the right track to modernize their system environment maybe quicker, and that has a direct impact on so many things operationally and then also the financial statement audit. And your memorandum went to the secretary, the deputy secretary, the undersecretary, the comptroller, the CIO, the auditors, and so on of the different armed services. They know they've got a problem, fair to say. That's fair to say. And did they generally concur with your recommendations? Yeah, yes. Actually, um, we had 31 recommendations, quite a few. They concurred with all but one. And the one that they didn't concur with, uh, we did ask for further comments. And, and I mean, I think we're kind of headed in the right direction with that one as well. So they know it's a problem. That's one thing we did find during our audit was there's already a lot of efforts going forward. We're just making sure that they're best positioned to maintain systems that produce good data, use taxpayer dollars efficiently, um, and like Shelby said, uh, obtain an audit opinion by 2028. And in the meantime, we could use a few years without continuing resolutions. That might help. That is true. <laughs> that would help us all. Chris Hilton and Shelby Barnes, project managers with the Office of Inspector General at the Defense Department. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thanks for having us. And we'll post this interview along with a link to their report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Kolmstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven 
aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Excellent. We're we're going through a a culture project at our work. Oh, great. It's it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, Is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is 
What do they need when they need it? And building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus. Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. 
And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, 
find my own confidence and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's... Uh, It's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.